6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Job, chapters 15 through 31. We are in session four of our exploration of the book of Job. And we are on the horns of a dilemma, in a sense, because we've been through round... We have these three friends. Job is in his turmoil. All his wealth and possessions have taken from him. And uh, now even his health. He's very painful, very very uh, distressed, and also puzzled. As Why is all this happening? We have the benefit of that conversation between God and Satan that gives us some background that Job didn't have. But then Satan's final attack was not the health. His most vicious attack are these three friends. And uh, these three comforters, they're going to go around three rounds of, of dialogue with Job. A bulk of the book are these dialogues between these three comforters, if I can call them that, and Job. And uh, we went through round one last time. We are in chapter 15. Now the dilemma I'm facing is if we go verse by verse, literally like we've always done with all our Bible studies, you know, we'll be in Job into next summer. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, I have taught Job once where we just sort of did a one-hour summary of them all, and that was a little thin. And so what I've tried to budget ourselves here, we have tonight to sort of plunge into round two and three. That means in the hour that, or so that we're going to be together here, I'm going to try to skim through, not too superficially, and yet... In, uh, somewhat rapidly, 16 chapters. <laughs> because we're going to... See, second round starts at uh, uh, chapter 15, Eliphaz, who we heard last time. It's his second discourse. Then we have a couple of chapters of Job's reply to that one. Then chapter 18 is Bildad's second shot at it. And then Job's reply to that one. Then Zophar's second discourse in chapter 20 and Job's reply to that one. That finishes the second round. And then we have a third round. Eliphaz goes at it a final time, and Job has a two-chapter reply to that one. And then Bildad is in at it again, and Job replies to him. In fact, most people take chapters 26 through 31 as Job's final soliloquy. There are some scholars that suspect that Zo buried in that is Zophar. You see, there's some translation problems and other things, but that Zophar may have had his third, which would make it more symmetric. Three guys, each has three shots, so to speak. But in any case, we're just going to jump in and get the flavor of this. The, the arguments, while incredibly eloquently expressed, especially in the Hebrew, are pretty much a broken record. And if we wade through it verse by verse by verse, you'll discover that it's not like they had lots of different angles. They really keep hammering away the same theme. Now, we'll jump in and take Eliphaz's second round, starting in chapter 15. 
And you can follow with me, and I'll skip through a little bit in places. But anyway, the first six verses of this chapter, Eliphaz, the Temanite, uh, uh, charges Job with presumption. What's really interesting, these guys, see, Eliphaz, for example, when he started his first discourse, he was very polite, very courteous. He's the eloquent one of the three. But he, each time he's up, he's up to bat second time, you'll have a third one yet, he gets nastier and nastier. And they're accusing Job. Job says, hey, what have I done? His life speaks, you know, his life speaks uh, uh, well of him, and yet why is he suffering all this? And they're saying, obviously, because you've sinned. They can't grasp that there's other possibilities that, that this might not be Job's fault. But anyway, just jump in Job chapter 51, verse 1. Then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? <laughs> Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear and restraineth prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee. And not I, yea, thine own lips testify against thee. So now, he, although he started out courteously before, he's really thrusting deep here. And he accuses Job of all kinds of pretentious claims. I won't go through them verse by verse, verses 7 down through 13. Well, art thou the first man that was born, or wast thou made before the hills? Hast thou heard the secret of God? Dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? What knowest thou that, that we know not? What understand? So, see, it's getting these, these, uh, dialogues are quite eloquently expressed, but they're getting quite tense here. And what he's saying right down in verse 13 or so is, we have the same sources of knowledge that you have. Why do you put us down and think yourself so smart? Now what's strange about this dialogue is that Job didn't. You know, if you read, you know, if you recall, you know, Job, Job is not a hypocrite. He's very, very self-conscious of the possibilities, but he just won't buy their, their premises. And so anyway, Eliphaz returns with this, as all his, his two buddies do, they, they, uh, they have this narrow and worn out theology. They have this basic premise that they assume is right and they, 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 they can't seem to, uh, uh, you know, get out of that. And so, uh, verse 14, what is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a womb, that he should be righteous. Behold, he, he putteth no trust in his saints. He, yea, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much more abominable and filthy is man which drinketh iniquity like water? <laughs> Who do you think he has in mind as he's talking about this nasty stuff? Job is a, by implication here. See, now again, one of the problems, one of the reasons this gets studied so much is that if you examine the premises of these three friends, there's nothing wrong with them. The theology is not wrong. Um, he's simply pointing out the general nature of man, the depravity of man, the fall, and its effects on human life, which is true. So you can't really fault his theology except to this sense. It's too narrow and it's being misapplied. See, no one's righteous before God. But, but see, he never once throughout all these discourses does he point to anything specific that Job has really done. He's just operating on the presumption that the uh, sinners suffer. And if he's suffering, he must be a sinner. You follow the logical fallacy that's there? It's interesting that God never charges Job with any fault until Job himself begins to see what's wrong. You're going to discover that these three guys don't change their tune all the way through these discourses. You will notice, if you studied carefully, that Job gradually is getting more insight. In fact, he's going to make some remarkable statements in chapter 19 when we get there. We'll come to that. 
See, they keep charging Job, but his life, Job's life, gives the lie to their charges. And uh, by the way, they too are guilty of these things that they're that they because they too are part of the human race. But Eliphaz is going to go on in a very long passage to argue just exactly what he did before, that the wicked are going to be punished, and therefore if you're being punished, you must be wicked. Now be careful, that sounds logical. It isn't logical, you see. And so uh, um, the murderer last night was left-handed. I'm left-handed, therefore I must be a murderer. You see a problem with that? You see, it's not, you know, it's okay, it's all-inclusive, in Exclusive. I won't get into the. I won't diagram it Boolean. You don't have to go to Boolean algebra to solve that kind of logic problem. It's pretty obvious. Okay. And uh, anyway, uh, you've got to be careful of those logic Well, I'm not going to drag you through the rest of chapter 15. Uh, Eliphaz goes on and on and on in terms. Basically, that's the theme, although it's very eloquently, eloquently uh, uh, expressed. We get to Job, uh, to uh, Job chapter 16. Job replies. In fact, he's going to spend two chapters on his reply. And he doesn't really know how to answer. But he is trying to be honest. See, the great thing you'll notice about Job all the way through here is that he's no hypocrite. He makes some statements that he later regrets and admits that they were rash. It's not that he's perfect. But on, on balance, he, he does better than any of us would, especially when you keep in mind the agony he's in. He's in pain. He's, 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 he's uh, in serious health problems. He's had everything stripped away from him for no apparent reason. But this biggest pain is why? Why? And uh, I, love, I love Job 16 comes right to it. And then Job answered and said, verse 2 of chapter 16, I have heard many things, miserable comforters are ye all. You know, <laughs> if you've got friends like these guys, you don't need enemies. And yet as we go through this, as we go through this, keep in mind that you and I have been guilty of the very same thing they are. Applying platitudes, a narrow concept of theology in inappropriate places to people who are suffering. We're to weep with those that weep. Boy, (laughs) miserable comforters they sure are. Shall vain words have an end, or what emboldeneth thee that thou answerest? I also could speak as you do. If, if your soul were in my soul's stead, I would heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and uh, the moving of my lips would assuage your grief. Now these are sarcastic words coming from a very, very tortured person. Now, Satan is using these three friends for what Paul would call the fiery darts of the evil one. Let's recognize that these three characters are unknowingly the instruments of Satan. Satan almost had, you can look at him as having three phases. He took all his possessions. Job did well. Satan complained to God. He wanted to change the ground rules. God said, you can do everything but touch his life. Now he's touched his life. He's still doing well, relatively. His final thrust are these three friends. Uttering what fiery, what Paul calls fiery darts. And we need to be very careful ourselves whenever we find ourselves in a position of accusing a member of the body of Christ. The accuser of the brethren is a title of Satan. And there are people who publish, who are on the radio with programs, who make their career attacking the persons in the body. 
And I was on the board of, of an organization that Dr. Walter Martin founded called the Christian Research Institute. Uh, no real resemblance to the one today, by the way. But anyway, the point is, Walter made his living attacking false teaching. But he's very diligent. He never attacked the person, what he was teaching. He would take the published doctrines of some group and compare it and show it why it wasn't biblical. Never attacked the person. And it's so easy to fall in the trap of, of attacking the person. And dangerous stuff. There are many people on the public scene that I don't happen to agree with their views on some things. But you don't attack them. They're, they're, if they're saved and they're members of the body of Christ, you don't attack the brethren. Accusing the brethren is what Satan's all about. So be, we all need to be very careful there. There's also a procedure in Matthew 18, what we should do. If we have a fault with the brothers, you go, there's a whole a three-step procedure you go through. Don't do it behind their back. You don't do it in public. You do it with a brother to brother and so on. Anyway, Job goes on here then to state the facts as he understands them. He says, all I can conclude is that God must hate me. Now, he's wrong about that. See, Job isn't always right. He doesn't demean God. He's always conscious of God's majesty, but he is convinced that somehow God's upset with him. And he goes on through that uh, verses 6 through 9. He just, he just presumes that somehow God must be, be behind this widespread rejection of Job. Not only in his, in his health, but everybody is, is, is picking on him. Everybody is uh, rejecting him. And he goes from verse 10 on, he talks about how they're, you know, they're, that he's upset that they, they just dismiss him. Get down to verse 17. Not for any injustice in mine hands also my prayer is pure. And he, he just doesn't understand it. But he is charging God with all that's wrong in his life. But you know what's great about that? God is so patient. He doesn't strike him down right there. He knows Job's hurting. Job is not the highest example of faith in the Scripture. We're not here to study how neat. Job did do pretty well on balance, better than probably any of us would have. But still, he's not perfect. He meant this is wrong. But it is candid and realistic in terms of how uh, uh, difficult it is for our uh, when our natural view of life is shattered. We all have a worldview. We all have a set of presumptions. And when circumstances or whatever shatter that, that's tough. That's tough to deal with. God sometimes has to translate the theology that we have into painful experience before we really begin to grasp what he's trying to tell us. And that's part of what's going on here. He's allowing Job to go through this because Job is going to grow in this in some very interesting ways. That's pretty much the flavor of the rest of chapter 16. Let's pick up Job 17, where he continues his rebuttal here. See, despite the charges that he makes against God, he also recognizes that only God can provide the answer. He thinks God's against him for some reason. He doesn't demean God. He's constantly, uh, evid- clearly uh, uh, evidences God's majesty and power. But he knows there's a mystery he can't solve. But he will gradually begin to realize that that solution will come from God to him. That's, an, that's, an, that's, uh, that's uh, see, um, God often sends a trial to cause us to, uh, in fact, to wean us, if you will, from the dependence on other people and to find our resources totally in God himself. That's, that can be sometimes what's going on and that is what's going on here. <laughs> what Job's going to do in chapter 17, he's going to pray that God will set him free. 
But you what you know what he most wants to be free of? His three friends. <laughs> See, his final agony, aside from the physical hurt and so forth, is the agony of knowing that there's answers he doesn't have and knowing that these guys are not helping. And uh, <laughs> my breath is corrupt, my days are extinct, the graves are ready for me. Are there not mockers with me? And doth not mine eye continue in the provocation? Lay down now, put me in a surety with thee. Who is he that will strike hands with me? For thou hast hid their heart from understanding, therefore thou shalt not exalt them. He that speaketh flattery to his friends, even the eyes of the children shall fail. He hath made me also a byword of the people, and the aforetime I was as a tabernacle. Mine eye also is dimmed by reason of sorrow, and all my members are as a shadow. Upright men are astonished at this, and the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. The righteous shall also hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. But as for you all, do ye return and, and come now? For I cannot find one wise man among you. <laughs> my days are past, my purposes are broken off, my thoughts, even the thoughts of my heart... They change the night, and today the light is short because of darkness. I, if I wait, the grave is mine house. If I made my bed in darkness, I have said to corruption, Thou art my father, and to the worm, Thou art my mother and my sister. And where is now my hope? As for my hope, who shall see it? They that go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. You know, this is eloquent stuff. It's, it's, almost, it's, it's disturbing a little bit to find ourselves in a situation where we're sort of skimming through it because the beauty of the book is incredible. The articulation is incredible. Uh, even in the translation, which is certainly imperfect. But in any case, uh, he, re- he, he responds to Eliphaz, second to course. Now we get Bildad steps up. <laughs> and he Bildad goes, just goes on the defensive, and he again just hits his narrow, rigid dogma. Then answered Bildad the Shuite and said, How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we shall speak. And wherefore we are counted as beasts and re- reputed violent. The whole thing's getting tenser, back and forth, less and less rational. And uh, uh, I, again, I, I, in the interest of time, we'll just get through Bildad's babble here and uh, jump into Job 19, where Job replies to, to actually not to Bildad, but all of them. And this, he, Job here is um, just a piteous plea in which he's he, regarding his friends and the mystery of what on earth is going, happening to him. Then Job answered and said, How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have ye reproached me, ye have not ashamed. Are you are not ashamed that you make yourself strange to me? And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed ye magnify yourselves against me and plead against my my reproach, know now that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his hand. He recognized that God's hand is this. That's what's puzzling him about this whole thing. Now we're going to go on with these discourses, but so you glimpse ahead. These three guys, before the evening's over here, are going to be finished. The good news is we're going to get to the end of the words, okay? But there's a fourth guy that's going to show up next time. And I call him the mystery man. I won't, I won't say much more than that because we'll leave that for next time because scholars are divided as to who this guy is. What makes him so conspicuous is that after he's through, God steps in and addresses all of them. And God takes these three friends of Job's and really puts them down. Really nails them. And the mystery is he didn't Discuss the fourth guy. Who is the fourth guy? What's he really say? Is he, what throws a lot of people is younger than the others. So we tend to dismiss him. He's a young guy. Well, uh, we'll see when we get there. So uh, I call him the mystery man. But anyway, we'll get through these three. Anyway, Job, Job is uh, uh, vexed, of course, with this whole thing. Uh, when you get down to verse 13, we, he gives us a vivid description 
of the isolation he feels, not just the pain of the disease and, and all this going through. You got a, you, you pus covered sores and all that stuff. It's uh, his isolation. He hath put my brethren far from me and mine acquaintance are ye verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed and my familiar friends have forgotten me. They that dwell in my house and my maids count me as a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. I called my servant and he gave me no answer. I entreated him with my mouth and my, my breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated her I treated for the children's sake of my own body. Yea, young children despise me. I rose, they spake against me. All my inward friends. And he goes on. I just, it's, it's bad stuff, tough stuff. But it builds up here. He says, I've, uh, in verse 21, I've, I've escaped with the skin of my teeth. There's where the expression comes from. Verse 21, Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O ye my friends. The hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God and are not satisfied with my flesh? Notice verse 23 and 4. 24. I think this is kind of fun. He says, Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen and lead in the rock forever. Now, that's just a cry of a tortured man. I don't think he had any realization that his words would be. <laughs> we are reading them. They are penned in a book. They're most, one of the most famous books in history of man. The earliest book of the Bible. And his, his, his plea here was very literally fulfilled. But the real reason I wanted to caution you here, because there's a, three verses that follow that are three of the most famous verses in the Old Testament. Don't let them slip by with, without recognizing how unique they are. We're in the oldest book of the Bible. We're in the Old Testament. And listen to what Job says. For I know that my... I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. He, he, he declares this statement of the bodily resurrection that he has a Redeemer that lives. This sounds like New Testament stuff, doesn't it? This sounds like Paul. No, this is Job. Oldest book of the Bible. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. This is a, this is a concept of Jesus Christ that eludes most churches. It's amazing how many churches do not dwell or focus or, or acknowledge that Christ is literally physically going to return to rule on the earth. He'll rule in our hearts. They, they allegorize it all away. My Redeemer liveth, and they shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh. See, he's talking about a resurrection of the body. He's talking about the resurrection of the body, not some kind of spirit thing. He's talking about, in my flesh shall I see God. I remember as a kid, when the Revised Standard Version just came out, one of the contributors, they, re, they translated it, without my flesh I shall see God. They, they destroy the whole thing by uh, twisting the Hebrew. And none of the, none of the, none of the other modern translations, I don't, I don't think, do that. They recognize the reality of what's here. It's a great treasure. Now, after my skin worms destroy the body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, who I shall see for myself and not another. And mine eyes shall behold not another, though my reins be consumed with me. And out of all this, he's saying, my heart fades within. He's, this is, this is expression as, as earnest and as, as strong as can be said. It's one of the earliest de de declarations of the resurrection of the body, found in the Word of God. 
See, Job, Job never fails in all his misstatements and, and agony. He never fails to see the majesty and power of God. And now he comes to the dawning realization that God is working out a great and mighty purpose and that God himself will ultimately be visible before men. That's what he's saying. And the fact that God is visible, the fact that there's a Redeemer, that there's a God-man involved is all implicit here. And that all that God has done will ultimately be vindicated, even though he doesn't see it right now. See, life is a mystery. And our problem is we can't comprehend it all because it's painted on too large a canvas. Can you imagine a small fly? If you've been to the forest lawn, they have a painting of the crucifixion. I forget how long it is. It must be 60 or 80 feet long. It's a huge, huge painting. But can you imagine a fly crawling on that inch by inch trying to make sense of it? You follow me? It'll see colors and brush strokes and, you know, it's, it's the threads of the tapestry or whatever. It has no concept. If we, that's our problem in life. Life is painted on too large a canvas for us. But Job, despite his concern of the mysteries, beginning to trust God. And the trust, the whole thing, the, the, the main lesson in the book of Job is that God is, the, that God is there. And Job begins to believe that he will, God will supply the answers he seeks. Verse 28 continues about, Ye should say, Why persecute ye him, seeing the root of the matter is found in me? Be ye afraid of the sword, the wrath bringeth the punishments of the sword, that ye may know that there is a judgment. By the way, uh, I, I did encounter a poem. Ray Stedman's commentary had a poem that uh, is unknown author, but it's, uh, it, it, it really summarizes Job to this point. Let me just indulge a quick poem here. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man, and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods. Watch his ways. How, how he ruthlessly perfects. How he royally elects. How he hammers him and he hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music